0: The following program is brought to you by Total Theater Online. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff or management of WGBB. You're listening to the station that serves your community, 1240 WGBB. And now it's time for Dave's Gone By with David Lefkowitz.
1: Well, there goes that neighborhood welcome everybody to dave's gone by on this last thursday in april 2005 episode number 125 and it's a good one do not go anywhere leave your dial your digital pointer or your button or your magnetic dental filling exactly where it is because from now till 8 o'clock on WGBB AM 1240 and live streaming on the web at AM 1240, WGBB.com, we've got comedy, we've got interviews, we've got the arts, we've got a bit of everything on this edition of Dave's Gone By. Hosted by yours truly, Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, theater critic, journalist, and humorist. If you were with us last week, and of course you were... Because where else would you be when I'm doing this wonderful program, hmm? Last Thursday night, I had two delightful guests on. The theater director, Stephen Tobolowsky, and the actress, Julie Haggerty. And they're both connected to a play being done in Los Angeles called Japanese Death Poem. I know it sounds pretty weird and goth, but actually it's a dark comedy about marriage and madness. I read it, and it's funny and interesting and different. All about this guy, this ordinary job, whose wife is slowly going crazy. Or is she? Maybe she's just so tired of the marriage, she's doing all sorts of nutty things to get out of it. Or maybe there's even something else going on, because the guy has a brother, who's a lot more successful and had a lot better relationship with their dad. Anyway, I enjoyed reading Japanese death Poem, and I wish I were in L.A. to see the show. It's being done at Theater 40, out there through May 22nd, and there's definitely a visual component to it, both in the staging, which has particular symbolic moments, and a spare use of props. For example, last week, director Steven Tobolowsky mentioned that the wife in the play, played by Julie Haggerty, she's had her kitchen painted bright pink, everything in it pink, pink, pink. And the production doesn't show this, per se. It's suggested by another actor holding just a piece of wood, painted pink, behind her head. It's an intriguing play, and it was great to talk to the director and the lead actress. But I was asked by Long Island Press, the weekly semi-alternative newspaper around these parts, to interview the playwright, Danny Arcieri, because he's a local boy. He grew up on Long Island and he's still here. He's a science teacher at SUVI Farmingdale. And he's had plays done at theaters here like Arena and Theater 3. So, in conjunction with Long Island Press, Danny Arcieri is my special guest tonight. You can find Long Island Press free at various railroad stations and stores all across the island. Kind of looks like the New York Press, though it is a completely different organization. No relation at all. And you can read the paper online at longislandpress.com. In fact, I've written theater reviews for them, and they're all viewable at the website. Just type my last name, Lefkowitz, in the search box at longislandpress.com. Com. And they're also publishing my interview with Danny Arcieri, or parts of it. The printed interview is about eight or 900 words, but we have many, many more words than that to share with Danny tonight on Dave's Gone By. I'll ask him what it means to be a Long Island writer, how he got his plays done in L.A., and how he balances a home life and a teaching career with a creative life. Should be real interesting and a lot of fun. Danny Arcieri, tonight on Dave's Gone By. Also, sticking with a the theater theme, Inside Broadway, our weekly look at New York Theater sponsored by TotalTheater.com, publishers of Performing Arts Insider Theater Magazine. And tonight, the last week of the Broadway season, with a bunch of openings, including shows with people like Alan Alda, Christina Applegate, Raul Esparza, and Brian Stokes Mitchell. Now, that would certainly be enough for any ordinary show, or even a typical episode of Dave's Gone By. But, tonight, a special treat, this being the middle of Passover. Because of the two interviews last week, we didn't have time to usher in the holiday properly. But we will make up for that this evening, thanks to our bewitched, bothered, and bewildered guest, Rabbi Saul Solomon. Yes, the Rabbi is back to offer us all his Passover advice, specifically how to stay regular on such an irregular diet. That is all tonight on days gone by. Co-sponsored by Hewlett's Minuteman Press for all your copying and printing needs and rated DGB thirteen, our just in case caution just in case your young kids need to be cautioned. And we will throw caution to the wind and begin the program And Wait a minute. If you throw caution to the wind, doesn't it just fly back and hit you in the face? I don't want to be hit in the face with flying caution. That hurts. You should probably just throw caution when it isn't windy at all. That's the safest, most cautious approach. So we will throw caution to the stagnant airless vacuum. Okay. Not as poetic, but you could probably fit it into a Japanese death poem, somehow. Hold that thought until we return just a moment or two from... Now. Oh, honey, you turn me on on the radio. That's right, Joni. I turn you on all week long for a bunch of shows on WGBB, like Wednesday nights at 11 for psychic astrologer Joyce Keller, hosting radio's longest-running psychic advice show. She knew I'd say that. Thursday nights at 6, an hour before Dave's gone by, it's WGBB Tonight with Larry Davidson. And then, right after my show, Smooth Jazz, The Instrumental Invasion with Mike Shimmeri at 8. Friday nights at 6... Bonnie D. Graham has advice about being single and singular on Long Island's dating. It's a madhouse. It's a zoo. It's Mikey and Jimmy's Saturday night. And then on Sundays at 7, Joe Salzone offers conservative politics with a sense of humor and an open mind on your world. If you're Dial in AM 1240 WGBB for Joyce Keller, Wednesday nights at 11, Larry Davidson, Thursdays at 6, yours truly at 7, Mike Chimery, Thursdays at 8, Bonnie D. Graham, Fridays at 6, and Joe Salzone, Sundays at 7. Call me at Inside Broadway, brought to you by Total Theater's Performing Arts Insider, your everything theater guide. Here's a question appropriate for the Passover holiday. Why is this Thursday night different from next Thursday night? It doesn't take a rabbi or a sleepy eight year old waiting for his Avi Toman to answer. This Thursday night is still a part of the Broadway season, with a few more big shows to open in the days ahead. Next Thursday, May 5th, officially begins the 2005-2006 Broadway season. That's it. Any show opening after that won't be eligible to compete for this year's Tony Awards, held the first Sunday in June. That's how they break the season up, by the way. There's a deadline that shows have to open by, and if they make the deadline, they're in. Of course, the big wild card straddling the fence this year has been Sweet Charity, I talked about that one two weeks ago with Christina Applegate breaking her foot on the road. Her understudy came in, got okay reviews, but not a lot of box office. The producers decided to close out of town. Christina talked them out of it and helped raise more seed money. Production resumed, preview started with an understudy, and then Christina, as she promised, came back in. And Sweet Charity will open on the last possible date to make the Tony cutoff, May 4th. They say she's still hobbling a bit, but has charisma to spare, so we'll we'll see if she really does pull a miracle out of this hard luck show. But Sweet Charity isn't the only Broadway show squeezing in just before the cave wall seals up for the season. Two days earlier, we get the latest musical by William Finn, the genius, and I don't use that word lightly, the genius behind the Falsettos trilogy, as well as A New Brain hopes are just as high for Finn's newest, called the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And yes, that is exactly what it's about. A group of young teenagers, played by adults, competing for that coveted trophy spelling champ. Reviews were outstanding when the show played off-Broadway this winter, and many critics feel, myself included, that Finn is the closest heir apparent to the wit and gift for Melody, of Stephen Sondheim. Speaking of which, one of Sondheim's favorite collaborators, James Lapine, wrote the book for Spelling Bee, which opens May 2nd at Circle in the Square Theater off West 50th Street. And staying in a musical vein, how about a Broadway concert by none other than Brian Stokes Mitchell, one of Broadway's most reliable and commanding leading men. He played Fred Graham to Marilyn Macy's Lily Vanessi in Kiss Me, Kate. He played Don Quixote, Man of the Mancha, when that show was last reviewed. He was the angry revolutionary in Kiss of the Spider Woman, and the angry proud Coalhouse walker in Ragtime. Now, he'll do songs from some of those shows, plus standards by the Gershwins, Lerner and Lowe, and other personal choices in Love, Life, A Life in Song. Brian Stokes Mitchell takes the stage of Lincoln Center's Vivian Beaumont Theater May 1st through the 22nd. But what if you are not into music? What if you like Broadway, but you want a meaty, gripping play rather than another musical? Well, opening the same day as Brian Stokes Mitchell is a revival of Glengarry Glenn Ross. It's one of the best plays ever written about salesmen. And we all know which the best one was, but David Mamet's classic is right up there. It's about a bunch of mid-level real estate salesmen desperate for good leads and willing to do nearly anything to keep their jobs. Glenn Gary won the Pulitzer in 1984, with Joe Mantegna giving a memorable performance as likable Ricky Roma. But for me, the memory the revival will have to beat is of the movie, which actually improved upon the play by bringing in a new character, played by Alec Baldwin, who totally ratcheted up the tension, making it more of a gladiatorial contest. Not to mention that the movie had amazing performances by Jack Lemon and Kevin Spacey, plus Al Pacino, Jonathan Price, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin. It's really a classic film. But hey, the cast of the new Broadway Glengarry is no small potatoes either. They've got Frederick Weller, so good as the half-wit ball player in Take Me Out, Lee Schreiber, and his poor put-upon Shelley Levine, none other than Alan Alda. Every couple of years he comes back to Broadway, most recently in that solo show about scientist Richard Feynman, as well as one of the three friends in Yasmina Reza's art. Joe Mantello directs Glengarry Glen Ross, which opens at the Royale Theater on Sunday. And that should wrap up the 2004-2005 Broadway season, right? Well, no, not quite. I left out one other show that opens tonight, right on 42nd Street. It's big, it's bright, it's tuneful, and, to paraphrase Ricky Martin, it bangs, it bangs. While you're guessing what the heck I'm talking about, let me remind you that you'd know everything I'm talking about if you subscribed to Performing Arts Insider Theater Magazine. Performing Arts Insider, a bible of the theater industry for more than 60 years. Where are all the shows on and off Broadway? Performing Arts Insider will tell you. You have friends coming in from out of town next month, and you need to tell them if the show they want to see will still be played. Performing Arts Insider. You've heard a rumor that your favorite TV star is coming to Broadway next season. How can you be sure Performing Arts Insider—it's your one-stop magazine shop for theater information, plus opera, cabaret, special events, and dance. And since we're zooming right into award season, you'll get all the info on the Tonys, the Drama the Outer Critics Circle Awards, the Obies—you name it. Performing Arts Insider has it. Twenty-one times a year, or also available monthly. 12 times a year, with 10% off subscription rates for days gone by listeners. Visit PerformingArtsInsider.com for all the details. You can also call Total Theater at 516-295-1511, 516-295-1511, and it will answer any questions you have about Performing Arts Insider. It's Broadway, the best way. Getting back to inside Broadway, the Bang Bang Way, yes, tonight, the stage version of Chiggy Chiggy Bang Bang opens at the Hilton Theater. The Hilton, by the way, is just the new name of the Ford Center, where Ragtime and 42nd Street used to play. Anyway, Chiggy Chiggy is all about an English family and their car. As director Adrian Noble admits, quote, "...the car's the star." And that's saying a lot, because Chiggy Chiggy Bang Bang also features Raul Esparza in the Dick Van Dyke role. Now, Esparza may be the hottest young actor in theater right now, thanks to roles in Taboo and Comedians and that great revival of The Normal Heart. And Philip Bosco's in the show, fresh out of Twelve Angry Men, and former Beauty and the Beast Belle, Aaron Dilley. But yes, there is that car, originally imagined in stories by Ian Fleming. As Raul Esparza told Newsday, I've begun to think of the car as a character, particularly when she's got her headlights on. They're like eyes, winking and blinking. And if people are cheering for the car, it's because we've been able to imbue her with life, Unquote. Fleming's stories became the famous movie and are now reworked for Broadway by Jeremy Sands and Ivan Minchel, and musicalized by the Sherman Brothers. It's a family show, of course, or as Richard Sherman told Broadway.com, quote, What we learned from Walt Disney is that in every grown-up, every sophisticated, educated adult, there's a little kid just dying to have a good time. And if you appeal to the kid in everyone, you'll have a good thing going. Will Chitty Chitty Bang Bang fly or crash? Will the real estate in Glengarry Glen Ross go boom or bust? Will the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee advance to the finals or slump back to its seat? The answer to these and so many other Broadway questions are in Performing Arts Insider. P E R F O R M I N G A R T S I N S I D E R. Performing Arts Insider. I won! I won! We've just been inside Broadway, thanks to TotalTheater.com and Performing Arts Insider. Oh my God, the wedding is next month. We need flyers, invitations, booklets. Irving, we are screwed. No, we're not, Pearl. We'll just go to Hewlett Minuteman Press. Hewlett Minuteman? What can they do? printing, engraving. Really? Letterhead, so is Wonderful! Are they still at 1315 Broadway in Hewlett's? Yep, Five one six five six nine five five seven seven. Well, stop dawdling! Let's go! Yes, dear. Day after the wedding, I kill her. I need more Dave! Oh, I hear that all the time. Once a week is not enough, but you can get all the Dave you want on CD. Dozens of complete episodes, just $14 per disc, shipping and handling included, and one more dollar for a personal autograph. Dave's Gone By CDs come with jewel cases, photos, liner notes, makes a great gift. So, for more info, check our website or email davesgoneby at AOL.com and ask for the CD list. Thanks, Dave! Welcome back to Dave's Gone By on AM 1240 WGBB in Freeport, New York, and live streaming on the web. AM 1240, WGBB.com. This segment is called Dave's Got Guests, and I do have a terrific and interesting guest who's got a play going on in Los Angeles. And it's kind of odd that we're talking to him for an L.A. play, because he's also had stuff done in Long Island. I think a year ago he had a show at uh, the Arena Playhouse. So um, should have probably talked to him then, but I'm sure he's going to have more plays on Long Island. Right now, though, he's got a fairly big production going on at um, Theater 40, I believe it is. It's called Japanese Death Poem, but don't think that this is going to be a a sad and somber uh, conversation. I have with me Danny Arcieri, or DT Arcieri to you, and he's the author of Japanese Death Poem, and we're going to talk about that on Dave's Gone By. Hey, Danny.
0: Hi, David. How are you? Thanks for having me here today.
1: Very, very happy to have you. So, I've always thought, I've seen your name before, and I know that you've had something at Arena, and you were also, did you not at hello, but what's the other um, airport There uh, house? Or? Uh, there
0: wasn't an airport, I was at Theater 3. Theater uh, yeah, I d- did a one-act up there uh, a few years back with Jeffrey Sanzel. Mm-hmm. Um, had a good time, great show. You know, he, d- he does terrific work up there.
1: So, I thought of you of it as a Long Island playwright, that, that you were really making a name, and it's kind of rare to as a playwright from this area, not so much in Manhattan, and certainly not on the West Coast. So how did that start, and then how did it suddenly get sort of that bi-coastal thing going?
0: Well, actually, um, I had work done in the early 90s in New York. That's probably where I made my bones first. Actually, I started at university, um, but, but, you know, it was a fluke, really. I was teaching a class, and uh, there was a student in my class who was the president of the theater club. And... He uh we just started chatting and I actually had a one act and he even read it and liked it and he put it on at, at Farmingdale State. Okay. And uh I fell in love with uh theater at that point. And uh I think a few years later I had a one act done in New York and that's when the ball really got rolling. As for Long Island, uh there's just not a lot of opportunity. Right. And I would say on the whole, uh gutsy guys like Fred DeFay at Arena Mm-hmm. And, and Jeffrey Sanzella at Theater Three, the, you know, you gotta have a lot of guts to do original work because it's not gonna pay. You know, the, I don't think the audiences here really want to see it. And um, uh, you know, in New York, you're gonna you're gonna find uh, a lot more new work. And even in New York, they don't want to take risks. You know, they, they got to pay bills and stuff. So,
1: what show did you have done in the earlier days when you were, I should off off Broadway? Where, where and what?
0: Uh, I did a couple of shows. Um, I worked with Myriad Arts. I did a play called Drinking Zombies, which was later done in Los Angeles, and a play called The Scream at a small venue called the Actors Institute, which was later also done in in Los Angeles. Uh, I worked for. Bi- I did work with Vital Theater on 42nd okay. Street. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I had a play called Requiem for Albert produced there. Uh, small stuff, mostly small venues, but excellent. I mean, very tight, great. I mean, you know, size is no indication of quality. These are 99 seat theaters. That's what I'd I, I told my
1: wife. But <laughs> 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 well, how did the LA connection come about?
0: Well, you know, uh, I'm a member of the Dramatists Guild, and through them, I I know about uh, theaters that are, you know, looking for original work. Also, you can go on the Internet now. You just uh, plug in, you know, your Google Play submission. You can find all all kinds of stuff. At any rate, uh, in Los Angeles, I I had sent a play, a play of mine called Norman. It was uh, the play that Jeffrey Sandel did up at Theater 3, and I got a, a nice letter back from Theater 40, and this is... Oh, I guess it was 2001. Saying that um, they it had received hundreds and hundreds of scripts, and that uh, they were only producing four sh- shows, and that I was the fifth, that I had, was number five. It broke my heart. It was it was horrible. I would rather be uh, 105 or 205, not five. So I it had my tail between my legs, and uh, you know, I everybody's saying oh well you know that's that's pretty good but you know really in terms of being a playwright and wanting to get produced it's categorical either you get a show or you don't right. i Absolutely. might as well be 205 but the, the funny thing was I, I i rent a studio in bohemia and i have a, a landlord there uh my uh, who's a friend of mine now uh mr uh, ray Lindsay, and he knows nothing about playwriting and he, he deals in vintage cars and i know nothing about cars so we he likes hearing about playwriting and i like hearing about cars so we talked to each other and i went over to his place well, actually, I was at my studio when I, I was talking to him when I got that, uh, that rejection. Um, and I told Mr. Lindsay, I said, Mr. Lindsay, I'm, I'm number five at this theater. Can you believe it? It's in L.A. And, uh, you know, and he, you know, he said to me something. He said, Danny, that's what they tell everybody that they were number five. Oh, nice yeah. guy. Well, you know, I actually it was like a re, I had a revelation no, for no, a moment.
1: No, no, I'm telling, as a
0: playwright myself, they don't. Sometimes they
1: send you a form letter. Oh no, and absolutely. And it says thank you very much for your play. I
0: I agree. And sometimes they don't even send you a letter. You know, you yeah. never hear from them again. But I will tell you, Mr. Lindsay, he was just he was being frank and and his uh you know honest self. And I and I thought for you know, oh my God, it, you know he could be right. Uh, you know they could tell everybody. That almost made me feel better because I really didn't want to be number five. Right. I didn't want to get that close. At any rate, um. A, About two weeks later, I got a phone call from Los Angeles, from Theater 40, and uh, it was a a gentleman on the other end of the phone, a guy named Steven, who told me that there had been um, a change, and that the the, uh, director of the festival was not the director anymore, and that one of the shows that the cast, you know, the the, uh, theater group didn't like, and and they uh, were going to bounce it, and that my show was in so I was number five they took me in it turned out to be Stephen Tobolowski. I had a long conversation with him and I I didn't know it was him by him, th- him meaning who, who the uh, Stephen Tabalowski. what
1: capacity in other words oh uh, he was
0: uh one of the he wanted to direct my show oh, he wanted, okay, he wanted uh, to direct it at theater 40 he was okay. part of the festival he's not the artistic director of theater 40 but um he want he liked my play a lot and he
1: wanted to bring it to them and direct yes you know, yeah yeah yeah,
0: yeah oh, okay. yep yep he, he looked at it and he said I, I want to do this one and so he called me and told me I was in, and I was um, very pleased. And at the end of the conversation, you know, he said, uh, you probably know who I am. I'm a character actor, and you've seen me maybe in, in something. And, and then he told me what movies he had been in, and I was like, oh. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. Ned Ryerson is usually you know from Groundhog Day. Yeah. That's that's the big one. He's Although known. now
1: he's in Deadwood, which I guess would yeah, be yeah. a bigger profile than. Oh, I, w-
0: I would. It might be. I don't know. Groundhog Day is such a classic that, you know everyone yeah. knows that. Uh, but he's been in you know I mean I can name 400 movies. He shows up all the time. It's in, in, every week I see him in some movie. He plays you know small roles, so sometimes you overlook it. You know, Freaky Friday. He he had a, a role in last year, and uh, Garfield. He he was uh, a real. It, he,
1: did yeah, anybody see Garfield? Well, uh, <laughs> you I don't answers. know. Is
0: that why uh, Yeah, actually, yeah, I do. I have a son. Oh,
1: Mitt Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Cool. So, um, but oh, he wanted to direct that show. Yes, right? and, and,
0: he did, and he did direct that show, and he did a wonderful job, and um, we uh, were colleagues and friends, and I am um, so pleased that he um, is willing to, uh, you know, work with me on another project. He came to New York. About a year after we did the show in L.A., he came to New York to do a Broadway show. Hmm. Uh, mornings at 7.
1: Oh, that was a wonderful revival.
0: Yes, you saw that. Well, yeah, the, That was him. Julie Haggerty was in that show. And uh, Christopher Lloyd and um, Buck Henry. You know, they just
1: did it really well. It, really w- it was
0: wonderful. It was yeah. a great show. Well, while he was in New York, I'd go in and schmooze with him, you know, and whatever. And I, I uh, one time uh, I handed him a script, a Japanese death poem, a new play. And he read it and uh, boom, you know but that, well, that was that was about two years ago, you know, two and a half years ago. So it's been a long process for And us. these
1: days with plays and, or, well, musicals even more, if it's under five years. Yeah, five years, yeah, it's yeah. true.
0: Yeah, we're probably, it might be in the accelerated.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the play. Um, sure. Which hopefully we'll get to see New York at some point. But That'd be great. But it will go well, of course. In, in, and by the way, when is it running at Theater 40? Uh,
0: it opens April 16th and runs until May 22nd.
1: April 16th to May 22nd at yes. Theater 40 in L.A. Yes, correct what is that about and how did you come up with
0: it, it's a mysterious process even to me I think that people uh, even inside theater but but definitely outside of theater people think that you have a lot of control of, over the creative process <laughs> and uh, playwriting is uh, mysterious to me I, I I understand plays the plays that I've written only after I've written them for the most part uh, I many times I'm not sure exactly where I'm going I, one thing I do have control over are characters and um, they are are very clear to me usually in the beginning, and their voices are very clear to me. Uh, I find that what I tend to do is put two people together who uh, don't like each other at all, who have real problems. And what I find is if you, if uh, you you put these people together and give them a reason to stay in a room together, the, the the pressure generated between the personalities drives action. It drives the play forward. And I usually follow. You know, you, I'm not the leader, but I'm following the action. And many times when I write. I, I you know, when I go every day to the studio or, or the next time I go to the studio, I always think, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. I wonder what's going to yeah, happen yeah. next. And I think that's why my plays work, because the audience probably, you know, is thinking the same thing, like what's going to happen next. And I don't think you can create that. I think if I outlined the work, yeah. you know, it would be more artificial. It takes that more natural flow because it's it there is a spontaneity there. I, I'm i not even sure. I think with that Poem, when I look back on it, it it's probably – um my most personal play because it addresses um, issues in my life that were, at the point of writing, unresolved. Uh, One crisis... You were
1: killed by a Japanese person? No,
0: no, no. Um, no, uh, Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I I would say, for the most part, the leads in my play, at least the the male protagonist in my play is usually me in some form, you know, usually some version of me. Other characters are usually... um, composites of of people. Okay. Not really whole people. But um, this person Nathan who who is the uh, lead character in Japanese death poem, he's a, a poetry professor at a small public college.
1: Okay. And like 75 so I and I mean, well, Yeah, I, you
0: know, I work at a small public college. I'm in the biology department, but you know, there's just, you know, things have changed a little, a little bit here and there. I'm not saying it's biography. Oh, but yeah, but right. but it's uh it's emotionally autobiographical. You know, it's not his, historically autobiographical.
1: Well what's the basic crux of it. I mean what, what oh, uh, the I, th- I
0: think um it it's a it's a, it's a love triangle, really. It's about two brothers. And um Nathan, who's who's the poetry professor, his uh wife um is seemingly having an affair with uh, Nathan's brother Jonathan. Yikes. And Jonathan is uh kind of a a sleazy md uh you know has a lot of dough and all kinds of cool stuff and nathan is the broke uh poor academic and um his jennifer who's nathan's wife uh seems to be drawn to jonathan and the money and the slickness but uh, it's really a question and i think that's what the play is about about you know you see the tension between the brothers uh but you're not sure what, where Jennifer is going, or who she's going to wind up with, or even what her motives are. But then it becomes increasingly clear what's happening. Nathan is, is uh, unaware at the beginning, and I think we're all unaware. And we slowly watch um, this love triangle emerge, and then we see clearly what you know why, why it. But I think one of the interesting things about the play is, is the brothers. It's a relationship between the brothers, and I've seen it thematically before in my plays. It's funny when I look over back over plays, I see similar themes emerge and um, the, the tension between brothers. And I think that good plays exist where the where the past and present collide. And these brothers had a tremendous past where they had problems as kids. In fact, the play we go back there and flashback, we see jealousy and the tension between them and it really uh, hasn't changed a lot as adults. You know what I mean? The, the The things that go on between them, but now they're at a higher level. Now it has to do with Infidelity, and it has to do with l- much larger issues than stealing somebody's cupcake. <laughs> <But you laughs> well,
1: uh, metaphorically, but yeah. Uh, yes. How much of that is autobiographical, or is that? Oh big, well, the story. A, co- is, do you have, did you have tensions with your brother, and all the rest of it is is just fiction? No, like, no. Or was there actually a love triangle, sort of, between you and your and your? No, I mean, not, none of none
0: of that is true. None, oh, of that, oh. none of that is true. I think that when I painted Jennifer, the portrait of her, dramatically. I did use um, my wife to some degree because there were, uh, you know, tensions in our relationship. It had nothing to do with uh, love triangle and oh, infidelity, okay. but I think very common tensions and, and issues uh, that I, I, I wanted to see on paper. Sandy, my wife, has seen herself on stage a number of times and she's always been very kind about (laughs) it. Uh, Because you know, the the pictures that I paint are my, you know, distorted perception of of reality or at least my my unique perception of reality. And um, so, no, no, I don't think any of that is true. I think the tension between the brothers uh, has more to do with my view on what's of value and what's not. Um, I think that being a poetry academic to me is much more valuable in this world than than being a crappy uh, dermatologist.
1: <laughs>
0: and you know, I mean, I just use these guys. I have no, nothing against dermatologists, yeah, and, but uh, I'm just saying, I, I th- when you look at the characters, I think it, it, there's a, the conflict between them is really speaking about values in this world. Roving you know.
1: over Botox, basically. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. <laughs> Very good.
1: Did you grow up on that, or where did you grow up? Garden City. Oh, so you were really a yeah, young, young, yeah. young boy kind yeah. of thing. and you got into science, was
0: that... I uh, I knew pretty early that I would be a, a biologist, I certainly hoped I would, probably when I was eight or nine years old, um, and I had watched birds, and, you know, fooled around in the yard, and very much into science. Not the brightest kid, but I think probably the most passionate, hmm. you know, when it came to nature and, and things outside, and at that drove me to study biology. I went to school at Farmingdale, and then I went to forestry school at Syracuse. I studied wildlife there. Oh wow! I worked as an environmentalist for Suffolk County for a couple of years before I went to Farmingdale, and uh, then I went to Stony Brook for a master's degree. And I think ultimately when I did graduate work, I became less environmental and more human. I studied more uh, human uh, brain function, neurophysiology, and uh, and again, I just tripped into theater. I think I've always been a little artsy, you know. But that—that uh, that was just—I mean, I like to write. Mostly, it mm-hmm. was technical stuff. And that one act was just a fluke, and you know. Well, you
1: had written it before you met the guy. Yes, the yeah, yeah. yeah. I had
0: been—I i had written short stories, and I—I I tried poetry. I, I was—I tr- guess trying to find a medium, and. With theater, I did. You know, I, The dialogue works for me. Dramatic structure works for me. You know, I, it just, it's very natural for me to, to express myself that way.
1: Well, let me ask. Now that you have gotten into the writing frame of mind, two, two questions. First of all, what writers, and they don't just have to be playwrights, influence you or do you admire? And also, what's your routine? How do you consider that you have a wife, got kids, and a full-time teaching job and you have to send out your plays and stuff. When do you carve out that, that time, that schedule, to get the creative stuff done?
0: Uh, the first part of the question, I would say, I think there's uh, lots of playwrights who influence me, uh, but I, I know there was one play I read at one time where a bomb went off in my head, and that was Chris Durang's uh, Sister Mary Ignatius, oh. exp- explains it all for you. That blew my mind, and I said, I have to do this. I have to do something like this, and I think I can. Hmm. And... Uh, but you know, I mean, I lo- I love Nikki Silver. I mean, why well, you go back? I mean, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, uh, all you know. No, but
1: you seem to be going for a little bit of the, the folks who shock with comedy a little bit. There is, that a, is there's that
0: definitely my, my work is is dark comedy. You know, it, it's always a little sugar and then there's a lot of medicine that comes comes with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a pattern. I've never written a straight drama. Japanese death poem, I mean, I was worried about the title. Stephen was more confident than I. You, see, you hear a title like Japanese death poem, it's hard to believe it's a comedy. And essentially, it is. It's a, it's a very dramatic comedy. It's hard to, you know, um, you know, I'm not really sure exactly where it fits, but there's lots of humor in it, but there's also, it gets pretty substantial emotionally.
1: I mean, that goes back to um, one of my writing teachers back at NYU. In fact, one of the first playwriting was Tad Moselle. Who was a major playwright in the fifties and also wrote a lot for television in that period of playhouse ninety and stuff and he was saying he won the pulitzer for uh, all the way home, which is an adaptation of death of the uh, death in the family the um the wolf play okay uh, uh wolf. Memoir, or whatever you call it, novel. And he was saying that there was no way they could keep the original title because death seemed like a curse. Yes. You couldn't put you know, uh, death on a marquee because no one would know. I I
0: fooled around with titles. And, and I, I think in uh, the world we live in today, especially the last couple of years, I think we ac- accept uh, the darker side of reality. And I think it integrates better with other aspects of life. Um, so I don't think Japanese death poem... Uh, Will do the uh, attendance of my play, the service. Well, I guess that remains to be seen. It's
1: forty, fifty years past, I think we've had death of a salesman, which yes, I mean, that's did all true. Right, that's you know.
0: true. Yeah, that did okay. That did okay. But uh, oh, your I, schedule. You're yeah, right. well, you know, I, actually, I'm a, a staff biologist at Farmingdale, um, which means that I work. I work in the laboratory mostly. I have. I do teach adjunct there, but I teach itself a community also, mm-hmm. um, adjunct, and in their biology department, uh, I what i try to do is write in the morning um lately in the last few mu- the last two semesters my schedule hasn't allowed it as much but over the the last 10 years i if if i went into work late which was quite often i would write in the morning and, and that, that was fine with me because uh i would i my schedule would be to the afternoon and evening at university and i i'm not an afternoon writer anyway i need to get up caffeinate and, mm. and sit down you know and that and that would be My agenda, but in terms of the process, I think it's really important for people to people who want to write to actually find a space. Mm -hmm. I was writing for years in the house, but you know, my wife, my son, the refrigerator, the phone—you know, reality—it's like it's wild. I I'm surprised that I actually was as productive as I was. So what I decided about five years ago. I thought, you know, if I'm really serious about this, um, I need to make a commitment. And I, uh, I rented a space, in a, it's like a loft above, above a barn. And I'm, I have no phone, I'm not mm. plugged into the internet. People can't believe that, but I, I, I need no distraction. I have to just really focus. And it's really beautiful there. And, and you know, I've, I've set it up in a way that, you know, fosters the feeling. I mean, really, you want to get into that zone, yeah, you know,
1: Well, do you, do you sit down and force yourself to... Or do you suddenly think and think and think and then finally some shape comes to I, you and a and conflict comes to you? I
0: think, for the most part, I'm constantly writing at some level in my head. You know, not physically writing, but I'm constantly throwing things around, moving things around. Because when I do sit down, it's amazing what can come out. I think if you wait to be in the mood or wait for the muse to, uh, you know, pat you on the head... You're not going to write. I think that the creative process has to be ritualized. You need ritual in terms of space and time. You have to have a place and you have to have a time and you have to make a commitment. And even if you're feeling crappy, you have to go there. It's like working out. You have to make a commitment. You and know, it's
1: just slack off, it's
0: yeah, it's not, it's not yeah. So I go there, you know, and I play my music and I light my candles and I wait. I wait for you know something to happen. And for the most part, it's shocking. Some, does. Something done. Yeah. yeah I'm like, what? Yep. yourself up. yeah and, and, so, and not every day. You don't always get in the zone, but uh, it's more often than not, you can go to that place. And that, you know when you go to that place because even if you only wrote one page, you could write five pages, one page. You know, I, I usually put it only a couple of hours, but you know you've gone to that place that you need to go when you realize that you've been sitting there much, much longer than you no. Yeah. Yeah. I look at you know I look at my watch and I think I've been there twenty minutes or half an hour. I've been there two hours. Total time. That's distortion. a lucky day. Yeah. Know, yeah. yeah. That's right. when you know when you're in the zone. Okay. And again, it's not a function of quantity. You know, it could be a page, but usually it's it's good. You know.
1: Are you? Um, I mean, one of my problems is I'll start things and get about ten or fifteen pages in, and then just be like, move.
0: yeah. Do you, have you started? The, like yeah, a bunch of plays. There are. Uh, there's a pile of of, of work around that. It, it it just doesn't take on its own momentum, and I think you're right. It's, a, it's like 10 or 15 pages in. You can't push. In the beginning, you're going to have to do a little pushing. The exposition, you have to push a little bit and, and figure out a, a good way to to get it going. But but it has to take on its own momentum. And uh, yeah, I I can't tell you what percentage of the plays I start actually come to fruition. But yeah, they're, they they bog down. I'm I'm in that dilemma right now with the play and. I just I'm wrestling with it. I'll probably let it go.
1: You want to talk, or are you one of those like me who?
0: do oh, I can't talk about that.
1: Whisper about a play no. in the in the creation. Of no, it.
0: actually, I have. Uh, it hasn't been scheduled yet, but my newest work. Um, there's a theater in New York, Abingdon Theater. Yes. On
1: thirty-six. On
0: thirty-sixth right? Street, they're interested in doing a reading of my my new work, a play called Mosquitoes and Butterflies. Mm-hmm. They have not scheduled it yet, but I've got I got some great notes from them, and uh, they do you know. Quality work. I saw it there last show a couple of weeks ago, and and they had the, the guy who directed the last show won, I think, the Tony twice for direction. Ooh. So you know, it's a it's a small place, but it's quality. Yeah, no,
1: it's a relatively new place. too. Yeah, it's, it's I think nice. so. so. are you do you go the t- contest route? I mean, now you have some level of recognition, or are you still sending them out blind? Or an agent
0: no I don't have an agent okay. I don't have an agent I haven't really tried that hard and I don't think it's you know I think that if I get one it'll be because they come to me hmm. um, it's like publishing it's like a, a lot of things there, it's, there are so many writers out there that these people in the industry are inundated and they can't tell you from anybody else it's hard for them but the work is, you know the work is what, what will I think you know move me along uh, you know they, if I stand out and I, you know, a play like Japanese Death Poem should stand out. I would be surprised if it didn't get uh, a lot of attention in L.A. I don't know if it'll be good or bad, but it'll get a lot <laughs> yeah, of attention. Yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's directed. Uh, we should tell or remind everybody it's directed by Stephen Tabalovsky. Yes. Again, from uh, best known as a character actor, you're seeing him on Deadwood now, and you would know him best either well Google his name. Yes. Got a Y on the end, or or go rent. Um, he was in the uh, Meme- Hug Day again. Yeah, he was, he was in Memento. Was in Memento. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, you know, I can name a whole bunch of stuff, but
1: um, also Julie, Julie ha-
0: yeah, Julie Haggerty is in the show
1: from Airplane, of course. I mean, yeah.
0: she must be so sick of
1: being referred to as Julie Haggerty from Airplane. But well, I
0: think they, you know, once you have a standout part like that, yeah. it, it's de- it's definitive. Uh, she's done hundreds and hundreds of movies. Her work is just wonderful. She is, um, she's really terrific. I did meet her at an informal reading of the play at Stevens' house uh a little over a year ago, and she's, I don't know. She's very sweet, and I think that she's going to be excellent. I mean, this particular part, uh, I remember my brother saying, he, when he found out that Julie Haggerty was in the play, he, was, uh, he said, oh, my God, she was meant for this. I mean, it, truly, the role of Jennifer is, you know, so I think she'll do a great job.
1: Well, I want to wish you best of luck with Japanese Deaf Poem. It's playing at Theater 40 in Los Angeles. From April...
0: 16th to May 22nd.
1: April, is there an opening day or is there...
0: Uh, April 16th. There's okay. no previews. It, it'll, you know, I'll be out there.
1: But it's a full staging. It's not a stage reading. It's oh, like no, a it's full
0: a full production. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we had a, actually, we had a staged reading at a theater called Kitchen Dog in Dallas oh, last yeah. June. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen flew in from L.A., I flew in from New York, and we worked with uh, their... Uh, a cast down there that they like the play a lot and uh, they did a wonderful job. And, and a stage reading is truly valuable to a writer. That's why I'm looking forward to the work at Abington because if you, you know, an audience sits through it and, and will comment on it. There a 100 people who saw it in Dallas and they stuck around for an hour to discuss the play with me and Steve and, and the cast. And I took a lot of notes and we learned a lot about the play. And I did a rewrite. And uh, so. Is that
1: tough though when you get.
0: All those voices and this person thing, that, and then... It is, it is. I still have
1: to go with you guys. I
0: have a tendency to get defensive, you know, when, when, when I hear a criticism on uh, my first thought. Is, you know, write your own friggin' play. <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's my first thought. But, yeah. you know, you sit there, and I, I could hear ten things, and I write them all down, and over the next couple of days, usually they filter through some process, and two or three of those things I realize are of value and are of meaning. But Stephen helps me a lot. He's such a bright guy. Right. He's helped me a lot.
1: Well, we've been talking with Danny Arcieri, or if you see him... Oh, yeah, that last question. What's with you know, the professional, quote-unquote, name
0: of D.T.? Oh, D.T. Arcieri. Yeah. I had decided uh, early on... You weren't an oh.
1: alcoholic with the D.T.'s, were right? no,
0: no, no. But I did think I, I, of a group of my one X being called the D.T.'s. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> I tried to sell it to a theater in L.A. They almost bought it. Um, I had decided early when uh, some of the plays I wrote had strong sexual themes that... Now we're talking. Yeah, That uh, it would be better if the individuals at the theaters, the artistic directors and the literary managers, did not know if I was a man or a woman. Oh. So I tried to obscure my gender because I wanted them to see the piece as it was, not from like, oh, a man said this or oh, a woman said this. I wanted it to be, I wanted the play to, to stand on its own without a biased, you know, reading. And uh, yes. it just it sort of it just stuck and I you know
1: and now that you're identified with it yeah DT people yeah. With it, yeah yeah but it's Danny or DT R-C-R-E, Arcieri A R C I E R I if you're going to the coast go check out his play Death Japanese Death poem if you're staying in New York well he'll hopefully have a show at the Abingdon in a few months and who knows where else he will also probably on Long Island as well Danny thank you so much for being in the neighborhood
0: thanks David I appreciate you having me here today.
1: If they asked me, I could write a book. Well, they did ask me, and I did write a book. A collection of my comedies called Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World. If you like farce, there's The Triple Wedding. If you like dark comedy, there's Last Respects. If your taste runs to the absurd, Blind date. Something for everyone in marriage, babies, and the end of the world. $20 hardcover, $12 soft. Buy it now at 516 295 1511 or through the Days Gone by website. What do the letters DFSX stand for? They stand for Dave's Gone By, that's what, because DFSXRadio.com is rebroadcasting vintage episodes of Dave's Gone By every Thursday night at 8 and 11 Eastern Time. So you hear me on GBV and then listen to me on DFSXRadio.com every Thursday night at 8 and 11. It's all the Dave you could ever want, kind of. Mazel tov, Mazel tov, Mazel tov. Congratulations. (imitating) Congratulations. Shalom, shalom, goddammit. Happy Passover, everybody, and most happy holiday time for all my lancemen in Mishpochum. This is Rabbi Saul Solomon, leader of Congregation Songs of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. It is now the sixth night of Passover. Which means it's been five days of prayer, five days of remembrance, five days since I've taken a dump. Oh my God, if my belly were any more distended, it should get its own filling. What is it about Passover food? It's not so different from regular food. Okay, so you're not having bread. But unless you're one of those unnaturally strange, crazy people who eat whole wheat bread, you know the type, they're bizarre and well-adjusted. I think they're called... I Anyway, if you just eat regular white bread like uh, Wonder Bread, oh, there's a bread. You put two drops of water on it, it dissolves! It curls in on itself like a potato bug! If it weren't for the crust, Wonder Bread would have no actual texture at all. I love it. You eat a tuna sandwich with mayo. There's always that fantastic moment when your index finger touches your thumb and you're not even halfway through the sandwich. And there's tuna fish going everywhere on your shirt, on the table, on your beard. Using Wonder Bread always guarantees you will have a snack. You're sitting in your study studying, you're reading and reading and you're hungry, but you don't want to lose your place to get up and grab a hushie I go rummaging in my bin. Maybe there's tuna fish from that afternoon, some egg salad from the day before, or if I'm really lucky, chicken salad. All thanks to the malleability, the spiritual evanescence of Wonder Bread. One time, the supermarket did not get a shipment, so my wife, my dear wife Miriam Libby, got Arnold Bread instead, I was so hungry that night. I checked my beard for a midnight snack. Nothing. So Hashem bless Wonder Bread. Now, what what the hell was I talking about? God damn it. Oi, You cannot have Wonder Bread on Passover or any bread. you got to have matzah, which is also flour and water, just like bread bread. Only there's no yeast gets hard and brittle, but doesn't actually rise, like me after a Viagra. But you know, we don't eat regular bread on Passover because our forefathers had no bread when they were wandering through the desert. They hightailed it out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, which Moses and Shem made sure opened up wider than Jenna Jameson in a biker bar, and then, boom, they're in the desert, Nothing to do, nothing to eat, no museums, no high-life All they get is manna, the dewdrops that God sends down every morning. And somehow, this is enough. Except for later on, because if the Hebrews had to spend 40 years in a goddamn desert with nothing to eat but manna, let me tell you, that would have been the fastest conversion to Christianity in the history of the universe. And Jesus wasn't even born yet. But after the 14th or 15th year of nothing else to eat, the Jews would have been like, what's for breakfast? Oh, man, again. God damn it, I'm turning Goy. I don't care, I don't care. Who's got the best meal plan? Who, the Buddhists? No, 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 I want meat. God damn it, I want a steak. Who can eat steak? The Zoroastrians? Great, I'm with them. Give me my foreskin back, I'm out of here. No, but the Jews certainly did have more to eat when they were traipsing around the sand, desert food like nuts and dates and bottled water from the oasis. But because they left Egypt so quickly and we were on the run, when they made bread, there was no time for it to get all puffy. So we commemorate that by stuffing ourselves with matcha. Why the hell we can't eat beans, I do not know. No corn, no rice, no legumes. What the hell is a legume anyway? If it's a bean, why not say bean? Fancy-ass lawyer talk, that's what it is, goddammit. But Ashkenazic Jews don't eat beans or even mustard seeds on Pesach, so we are really up Craps Creek, literally. Sure, you can have green leafy vegetables and fruits... But if I can't start my morning with a corn muffin and a handful of peanuts, my intestines back up so far, the whites of my eyes turn brown. And I know we're supposed to remember the suffering of our forefathers, to feel the agony that they felt when once they were slaves in Egypt. But they just had to lift bricks. They didn't have to poop them. So people ask me, Rabbi, I can't have corn on a cob. I can't have a bagel with a schmear. I can't have cold pow chicken for magic walk. How am I supposed to make a decent bowel movement? And I say, like so many other things, it's all in the mind. If you think you can poop, you can poop. You ask for Hashem's help, of course. You say, oh, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has commanded us to eat a week's worth of food made out of tree bark and library paste, who maketh us to suffer with cramps and loginess and hiding really bad thoughts and seat cushions. Oh, God of our fathers, please shuckle up our intestines so we don't walk around looking and feeling pregnant with an ass baby that just won't be born. Please, O Lord, dilate our anuses so we can pass an object Potentially the size of a Coke bottle. And I'm talking the 64 ounce, not the overpriced 1.5 liter that they've been charging the same price for lying sons of bitches that should all get cancer. And may we spend the rest of this Pesach holiday happy and healthy and regular or made. Ah, see? Don't you feel better already? No? Ah, well, you're obviously an unbeliever because if you really give your soul and trust to Hashem, if you put your rectum in His hands, you shall poop bricks of gold. Of course, you can also take a teaspoon of olive oil, four glasses of water, and a bowl of spinach, but what's so spiritual about that? You hear the phrase, uh, God is my co-pilot? Co-pilot, co-pilot. Oh, I want him as my gastroenterologist, but I guess that's hard to fit on a bumper sticker even in Hebrew. So to help you with your constipatory plight on this Passover night, just remember this little poem. If your bowels are stuffed with stuff, maybe you don't pray enough. Maybe you can't get relief because you're lacking in belief. If you trust in Elohim, you won't have to flush and ream. Simply say your daily Shema and you won't need an enema. Love Hashem with all your soul, and he will help you with your whole. For if you say those sacred words, God will fill your bowl with turds. This is Rabbi Saul Solomon wishing you a most happy and healthy and relaxed and relaxative Passover. On behalf of my dear wife Miriam Libby and our 19 children, Jehemia, Josiah, Shoimi, Chana, Rivki, Yehuda, Moish, Jehezkel, Boruch, Avigdor, Israel, Hepzibah, Shaul, Aliza, Shimon, Gedalia, Napoli, and Fred, by my first marriage, and little Beryl, who was born eight months premature but is doing well, in Yisrael Hashem, I say to you all, next year in Jerusalem, or if not Jerusalem, Ashkelon, which is on the coast and has pretty beaches. Chag to you all, from every one of me to every one of
0: you. If I were a rich man,
1: if I were a rich man, I could do the Dave's Gone, buy show for years and years, and never have to worry about money. But that's not the way things have worked out. So I need your help. You can help me by helping yourself by advertising or sponsoring segments on Dave's Gone By. It's easy, it's cheap. Just go to davesgoneby.com and see the rate card, davesgoneby.com, and bring your message to my listeners and make us both rich.
0: Hi, this is playwright DT Arcieri on Dave's Gone By, AM 1240 WGBB.
1: Welcome back to Dave's Gone By on this April 28, 2005. Thank you so much to Danny Arcieri, author of Japanese Death Poem. Tell all your friends on the West Coast it's at Theater 40 now through May 22nd. For more information, visit theater40.org. That's theater with an R E, theater40.org. Just a reminder that following Dave's Gone By on WGBB is Mike Shinery's instrumental invasion of smooth jazz. And then I return at 9 with Filler Up, a very folky music collection tonight, from Pete Seeger to Judy Collins, plus Wilson Phillips and Leslie Gore. And don't forget to hear another episode of Dave's Gone By. Go to davesgoneby.com and click on the link for DFSX Radio. Tonight at 8 and 11 p.m. Eastern, it's a vintage edition of the show you can hear on your computer, thanks to live365.com. Thanks also to Rabbi Sal Solomon for his his mozzerific advice, thanks to Kenny Herzog of Long Island Press for being the impetus for tonight's show, thanks to my lovely wife Joyce for being the impetus of just about everything else, thank you all for listening, next week as promised, new wave legend Reckless Eric, yes he's still making music, and he has a lot to say about the music business, Elvis Costello, Ian Dory, and Coney Island. So don't miss Reckless Era this coming Thursday, May 5th, 7 p.m. on Dave's Gone By. Until then, don't miss your days going by. This is Dave Lefkowitz. Good night, next year in Ashkelon, and gone by. <laughs>